Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shawanunu. have a special episode for you today. As many of you know, I'm a big history buff, including business history. And today's episode dives into one of the most compelling rivalries of recent history and today, Amazon versus Walmart. Jason Del Rey is a business journalist who's documented the companies for more than a decade now. He has a new book out called Winner Sells All. It recounts the business battles between, within these huge companies uh, and how they have looked to basically take over America and the world. How Amazon became ubiquitous. Walmart trying to figure out the internet, uh, initially ignoring Amazon as this cute little company, and then realizing, whoa, they mean business. I would bet that no one listening today hasn't shopped at one or the other, probably both. We talk about that, the impact on small business and the American consumer in this podcast. All right, before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one, as well as exclusive episodes, as well as extra content over on our members-only Instagram account. I do regular Q&As there answering your questions about the news and also deep dives on subjects that you request. By joining Mo News Premium, it's a way to support what we're doing here, support independent journalism, as well as gain access to the extra content. Right now, you can get Mo News Premium for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That's two free months on the annual package. There's also a lifetime subscription option. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. All right, with that said, here's today's conversation. Jason Del Rey, congrats on the new book. Uh, Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, and thanks so much for having me. So you've covered both Amazon and Walmart for the last decade. Uh, You've spent a couple years now I think you told me three years writing this book, interviewing more than 150 people uh, to give us a sense of two of the big kahunas in American commerce. Uh, I actually, as we are recording this this week, uh, Walmart is worth just over $400 billion. Amazon market cap $1.3 trillion. Uh, give us the state of play today, uh, and then we'll we'll go back and, and uh, retrace the story that you've... Um, uncovered here. Sure. So yeah, you you mentioned the market cap and the difference there, uh, which is wild when you consider Walmart's a bigger company by revenue uh, and the biggest employer in the US outside of the government, uh, Amazon's number two. And so the state of play today is uh, in online retail, Walmart is finally, after decades of sort of scuttling away the opportunity to perhaps lead in this future of retail, uh, they're finally kind of holding their own. They've developed an Amazon Prime competitor called Walmart Plus, which is uh, not, you know, has not substantially cut into Prime's lead yet, but is a pretty good service. They are finally doing what Amazon Long was scared of them doing, which is using their super centers as pickup locations and mini warehouses for delivery. And so they are a formidable rival uh, and no longer a laughing stock in this space. But the market share difference between the two in online commerce in the US is still, uh, I think Amazon's about seven times greater uh, market share. So the story you lay out here over the course of the past couple of decades is a story of the kind of the brick and mortar, old school Walmart against the digital upstart Amazon. Uh, and it sort of mimics, you know, a number of competitions that we've seen through the years of the legacy company and the digital upstart. And, you know, some of those legacy companies went away completely. Some pivoted early, some pivoted late. Um, 
take us back. When did Amazon first get on the radar screen of Walmart? Yeah, so like you said, this this rivalry goes back to the 90s, basically when Amazon was founded. And, you know, first year or two in the mid-90s of Amazon's existence, you know, at the top of Walmart, really not much attention at all. This is a little bookseller. And at the time, Walmart's around the $100 billion revenue business. And so kind of can't blame them for, you know, not paying much attention. Uh but some folks inside Walmart with sort of uh, a love for technology are paying attention to the internet. And this little team develops uh, just a few people led by a guy named Robert Davis. And they start experimenting with selling stuff online for Walmart. So they, Walmart owns Sam's Club. And during the holiday season, they start a Sam's Club website selling gift baskets over the internet. Um, they do a little you know, little selling through walmart.com, which they create. And you reach a point in 1998 where this, this head of this team, he goes into Walmart CEO's office, which had an open door policy guy's name at the time. It was no longer Sam Walton. It was a CEO named David glass. And he just says, David, uh, this internet thing, this e-commerce thing is real. Can you just like let the rest of the organization know that we're committed to it? Uh, it's not just an experiment. So that when I go to the logistics team and tell them I want to put walmart.com stickers on all the trucks that we have crisscrossing the U.S., they'll listen to me. Or when I tell the warehouse we might want to ship some stuff out of the warehouse directly to a customer instead of a store, that they won't laugh at me. And uh, David Glass essentially tells them, like, we'll keep experimenting, but this thing's not going to be that, that big. And so... uh, Robert Davis packs up his stuff. He had an he gets an offer from Amazon, and he goes and spends over a decade there, along with a small crew of Walmart veterans. And you know, the rest until recently is kind of history. You know, it's it's so fascinating because, and I think to those of us, I think elder millennials on up, elder millennials, Gen X, uh, and older, we remember a time before the internet. We remember that time. In the late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't quite know what to make of it. We'd all kind of gotten email addresses. And in the corporate space, you know, in the, a media example, like I know at the Washington Post, they were building a separate WashingtonPost.com. And they actually literally, they put them out in Virginia in a building. And the main <laughs> newspaper was in D.C. And so to us today, we're like, what is this kind of questioning of the Internet? But I mean, this was the reality for many companies that were weren't quite sure what to make of it, at least the existing legacy companies that existed then in the late 90s. No, I I think that's right. And so it's easy, you know, in hindsight to poke fun at, you know, the old school company. But uh, when you're, you know, it's kind of the innovator's dilemma, too. I think it's, you know, one of the most classic examples and Walmart had just, they were having so much success. Their rollout of these massive, very innovative, for you know, in, in a lot of ways, super center stores, which, you know, if you remember, were the everything store before Amazon. Uh, you know, it, like you said, it makes sense. They're, it wasn't sure what to make of it. And so they eventually, uh, with the help of a, a young executive there who had married into the Walton family, his name's Greg Penner, they end up partnering with a venture capital firm in the late 90s, and they set up a separate operation, Walmart Online, in the Bay Area. Um, won't, won't go through all the details, but that ends up not working out that great in the next year or two. And they decide, 
they're gonna they're gonna do away with this sort of joint venture and and put it back into the main company, put the online unit back into the main company. And the CEO at the time, by then it's a guy named Lee Scott. He, you know, he has a great quote in the New York Times where he's like, well, uh, you know, we may still deliver uh, to people's doors from the orders online, but we really want to use our website to feature what we have in stores. And so, you know, it's kind of like, again, still sort of struggling with what the opportunity was and really initially just trying to leverage it for to help their their existing mature, pretty amazing core business. Is it fair? I mean, one example that's come up a lot, actually, one of my favorite podcasts, by the way, is one called Business Wars, Mm -hmm. where they go through, I don't know, have you listened? Yeah, actually, they had me, they had me as the last, uh, they featured me as the last episode of the Amazon versus Walmart uh, 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 season back during the pandemic, but it was very, it was COVID focused. So yes, um, sorry for the plug, but yes, I (laughs) I no, have, no. I, I, I in fact, I'm I'm embarrassed. I missed that series of episodes. Uh, but good. but it's fascinating, you know, listening to all these various corporate battles through history. I mean, going back to the you know 19th century, they they go back with some of these. And so, a fair comparison is it a fair comparison to call the Walmart Amazon battle? Are there similarities to Blockbuster and Netflix here? So I I think there are you know on the surface for sure. I think what makes it different or you know, in my eyes, even sort of more crucial to understand or examine is just the power both companies have. And I mentioned they're the top two employers uh, in the in the U.S., but also their ambitions are much greater than you know Netflix and Blockbuster. They Amazon at least is is an entertainment company, but they are also retailers. Um, they are data companies. Amazon's a cloud computing company. Um, and as I lay out in one chapter in my book, uh, they also want to be significant healthcare players. Uh, Walmart already is in some ways through its massive pharmacy chain that it owns, but there's ambitions beyond that. And so I think just their influence over daily life, both in the US and in, you know, increasingly around the globe. India is another big market for both companies. Um, I think it's I think it's similar, but the stakes are kind of greater. I mean, the way you lay it out, they're looking to dominate every major part or nearly every major part of uh, our economy. So you you've discussed kind of the early period here. They're aware of this Amazon website. There's people at Walmart who you know are like, we got to take the internet seriously. When does the oh crap moment happen at Walmart? Yeah. So I mean, they. Over the early 2000s into the early 2010s, like they are, they are paying attention, but they, you know, they, they have these internal conflicts. So again, e-commerce is really expensive and you might lose money for a long period of time if you're trying to grow your market share. And so Amazon had messaged this. What makes it, sorry to pause you there. What makes it so expensive? If you want to match the prices of stores, which, uh, these companies want to, uh, and you want to offer speedy delivery, which Amazon Prime, and we could talk about that, you know, sort of just made, made for better or worse, uh, the table stakes that if you don't get something in a day or two, like you are like slow and there's something wrong with this business. Um, the shipping, shipping speed and the labor costs and the warehouse costs, all of that adds up to 
often more than what it would cost selling an item out of a store. Now, there are exceptions depending on what types of product categories we're we're talking about. But largely, what Prime has also done is made it so we think we can order one low-priced item on its own and that it could get shipped to us and the product costs the same as in the store. Like, the math doesn't really make sense. Right, I did it yesterday. I ordered a a bottle of aspirin from Amazon. That's all. I mean, and... It's not magic. Like the math doesn't really work. And we could talk about that. But yeah, you walk into a store, you're probably going to pick up some other stuff that help the profit margins. And yes, there are employees. There's a building that's being paid, you know, the lights are on and and all of that. But uh, the costs net out a little worse, especially um, online, especially if you're you're offering this crazy delivery speed. So we were talking about the oh, no moment. Uh, Sorry, for Walmart. Yes. Wait, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> no, no. I apologize. I interrupted uh, your answer with that uh, question about the state of e-commerce. No, that's fine. So, so, so Walmart's paying attention, and they're just you know they have internal battles that are kind of slowing them down. And uh, w- what happens is a, a new CEO is is named in uh, 2014. He is still the, he's the current CEO of Walmart today. Still, uh, his name is Doug McMillan. I have a chapter on him in the book. Fascinating guy. I think pretty undercovered for how much power and influence he has on sort of U.S. society and culture as the CEO of Walmart. And he has been at the company a really long time, but is is a bit more modern. He's a bit younger than the previous CEOs, other than Sam Walton himself. And he is a fan of technology. He talks about himself as an early adopter of some, you know, I think maybe the Palm Pilot back in the day and some other, some other I had a early Palm Pilot back, back pre Wi Fi. Yeah. Yep. And so, uh, so Doug comes in and he looks around at the dynamic uh, with Amazon. And internally, he and a few other confidants and uh, advisors, they, they sort of say to the board and other executives, like, I know we think this e-commerce thing is still kind of like, you know, it's a fraction of overall retail, but look at what Amazon's doing. Look how fast they're growing. Like if we don't do something significant, uh, we may not be around a few decades from now. I think he even might've used the words in a board presentation that they were Amazon existential threat. Sounds crazy when you look at Walmart's size, but Things like this happen, and not only. Re- I mean, I Montgomery mean, Ward, Sears. I mean, I mean, yep. The- Sears is a is a you know classic, great example. And so, Doug comes in, and he's just a little more concerned, I think, about the future as it relates to Amazon's power. And so they start uh, thinking about what big move they can make next, and. I can go ahead or I can let you... Uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. Take us to that next next step. So we're in the mid-2000s and Doug McMillan, and he has an advisor who who's runs mergers, mergers and acquisitions for him. Her name's Lori Fleece. And they're looking around and saying, well, we, like, we're not growing as fast as we should be in e-commerce. We think we need different talent. Like, how are we going to get there quickly. And they decide the best path forward is acquiring what was a young startup then called Jet.com. And it was run by an entrepreneur named Mark Laurie, who for people who might be follow retail and e-commerce space, that name might be familiar because he previously started a company 
that owned diapers.com. And back in 2010, sold that company to Amazon in sort of a pretty uh, back and forth battle uh, with Walmart, which actually was close to acquiring that company instead. And Mark Laurie had spent some years at Amazon after that acquisition, kind of didn't fit in, uh, had some internal battles at Amazon, and not clear whether he started Jet.com while he or the idea for it while he was still at Amazon or right after, but very quickly raises a ton of money from investors once he leaves Amazon for this new idea, uh, which was a shopping site called Jet.com. Which was essentially, so he's at Amazon, leaving Amazon, basically creating a competitor to Amazon. Yeah, and I think, you know, I if I remember the timeline, the news about Jet.com or the announcement may have happened maybe a year after he left Amazon, which um, probably not coincidental. And uh, I actually, you know, I, I, I found out about it uh, before it started and called him up. And he was very polite and was like, well, I'm not quite ready to talk about whatever your this idea you heard about. Uh, and in, some people thought it was perhaps because he was still under a non-compete. So so, so they launched Jet.com. The idea was essentially to sell a lot of different products like Amazon, like Walmart, but to give discounts to shoppers if they bought items in a way that sort of made more sense economically. So the more items you you bought in one order, uh, you'd get a discount because the idea on the back end was Jet could fulfill that order out of one warehouse that might be close to your location. And so instead of splitting an order between several warehouses, they would you know put it out of one warehouse and they'd give you the discount for the savings they achieved. You know, it was kind of under, hard to understand as a customer, but it was an interesting idea because it would break this um, convenience above all else habit that Amazon had really uh, sort of inspired in consumers in this country. And they were going to they were trying to, you know, appeal by giving savings beyond what Amazon or Walmart could give. So Lori sells diapers.com to Amazon, spends time over there, launches Jet.com, pseudo-competitor to Amazon. And Walmart at this time is uh, saying, we need to get our e-commerce house in order. There's this thing called Jet.com. Yes. And so to fast forward, they decide uh, they're looking around, trying to figure out how to move faster. And they decide acquiring Jet.com is their best bet. And really acquiring Mark Lorty and his executive team. Bring some entrepreneurial spirit, bring some real e-commerce expertise, and frankly, bring a narrative into the Walmart company, you know, to maybe tell Wall Street and sort of the technology industry that we're serious about this thing. And, uh, you know, we're going to be a real competitor finally to Amazon. And so they spend $3.3 billion to buy Jet.com, which really hadn't proven that it was a sustainable business yet. Um, I learned later was pretty short on money, would have needed to raise more venture capital money from investors, um, but was growing fast in sales because they were spending just a ton on marketing, I think up to 40 or 50 million a month for a one-year-old company. Like for a big company, that's not crazy. But for a startup, it's just an extravagant amount. So um, Walmart was buying the tech. 
essentially. They thought they they at the time they said they were buying the tech and they were buying the leadership team. And it would turn out they were buying the leadership team and the idea and the narrative and sort of the the halo effect that bringing these respected technologists into the company would give them. Um, we'd learned, though, that the technology they were buying, it they never really implemented it into walmart.com. There's a host of reasons why, but this idea that initially they were selling was that basically they'd bring some of the ideas of buying more items on Walmart and getting a discount. And that that just never manifested itself. But the leadership team did come in and they gave them kind of free reign over a couple of years to, I'm going to say, move fast and break things. Basically, shake things up inside of Walmart. You're quoting Mark Zuckerberg there. That was his motto at Facebook. Move fast, break things. Yeah, never thought there'd be a day when I was quoting Zuck, but uh, here we are. Here you go, Jason. Today is the day. And so so, so they acquired Jet.com and this team, and the team comes in. And they start, you know, immediately making some uh, just a series of announcements. Uh, some one of them was uh, they're going to make two day shipping, you know, free. And as long as you spend, I think it was thirty five dollars on an order. And so, you know, that was not better than prime. But, you know, the selection was much you know, smaller than prime. But for Walmart, it was better than they they had done. Um, they start playing around with other you know, quote, innovations or features like, you know, if you chose to pick up something at the Supercenter instead of having it delivered, you might get a discount on certain items. And then they started making some acquisitions of their own as well. And the theory there was maybe they'd they'd start acquiring some younger, what the industry calls digital native brands. So these are mostly apparel or fashion brands that might have a store eventually, but really start by selling online. And they acquire, the biggest one they acquired was a menswear brand called Bonobos um, for three over $300 million. And the idea was, at the time, they would acquire a bunch of these cooler, hipper brands, bring in a new type of customer, and appeal to a new generation that wanted to shop these brands and they would keep those brands away from Amazon, so Amazon couldn't offer them. So that was at least the idea in theory. Where does Walmart see itself? You know, one of the questions I have for you is: three hundred and fifty million or so Americans. Um, is there an Amazon customer and a Walmart customer? And in that Venn diagram, how much overlap is there? Where you know Bezos knows uh, and the team at Amazon that certain people are always going to be Walmart people, and at the mm-hmm. same time, Walmart knows like there's a certain portion of Amazon people I'm not going to grab? That's a great question. And something I, I should have maybe mentioned when you were asking about inflection points, like where Walmart was kind of like, oh, like we should really be worried now. Uh, so over time, and I, I have a chapter that goes through this in the book, Amazon Prime, which is the key to really their whole re, you know e-commerce domination, uh, Prime starts going after customers from lower income households. And the reason for that was pretty simple. When is this? So this is in the mid to late 2010s. So around maybe 2016, 17, 18. And, you know, the reason is basically in the US at least, Amazon had basically saturated higher income households. They had 
gotten the vast majority of folks in higher income and even higher sort of upper middle class as prime customers. And they wanted more. And so they start coming up with some ideas to attract folks with less disposable income. They start offering discounts on the prime membership fee if you are on some sort of government assistance. Um, They start offering uh, discounts for older folks who were, um, you know, on uh, Medicare. And uh, this actually starts working. And so some folks inside of Walmart are now saying, whoa, like they're, they're coming for some of our core customers. And at one point in the late 2010s, Walmart folks realized that more than half of Walmart's best customers, so the highest spenders, are now Prime members as well. And when you become a Prime member, I don't know if you've had this experience, you start price comparing less. You, you know, there's this psychology that Prime creates in, a, you know, in our mind as consumers, which is, I paid this fee, now I want to get my money's worth. And so Prime, for a variety of reasons, but this one chief among them, is really sticky. Like it's, you stick with it. You don't, you know, maybe you'll price compare over $100, but on a $20 item, $10 Right, item, yeah, right. If, if they're offering a sale on detergent at Walmart, you're not going to go over to Walmart to save $2 once you're a Prime member. Yep. And you probably aren't, you know, a lot of people aren't even looking and there's been surveys that have proven this out. And so this is, you know, to answer your question, there was, you know, there was a big separation for a long time between the Walmart customer and the Amazon customer. But as digital and e-commerce and online shopping became more prominent, the overlap was greater and Walmart started to see their best customers becoming prime members and then spending more over time with Amazon versus Walmart. And that was just sort of a huge red flag. Is Walmart fighting a multi-front battle here? I mean, to what extent, it, the, a name that hasn't come up so far in a conversation is Target. Yeah. Um, and and any other retailers, uh, you know, wh- where do they fall in sort of, uh, if you're in the situation room at, at Walmart? Uh, yeah, that's a great, that that is a great point. So Amazon fierce rival, existential threat in a lot of ways, but this is a, the the battleground is multifaceted. And so Target, you know, there's a great book to write about Target. Uh, Maybe I I might not be the the right person, but they've done a really smart job over the last decade deciding we're not going to try to match Walmart and Amazon on breath. We're going to pick what we're really good at. So we're going to invest in our stores so that they're actually pleasant experiences for folks who still a lot of folks still like going into a store. Yeah. Um, they're also, they also double down on their own brands. They call them house brands. So I have two children. They wear a clothing line called Cat and Jack. It's a children's clothing line. It's a multi-billion dollar business. I mean, it's massive. And so Target, Walmart does compete, and as does Amazon, mainly in the general merchandise category with Target. So apparel, consumer electronics, that's one front. But Walmart, a chief, you know, among ev- everything, is really a grocery store too. You know, they are the largest grocer by sales in the U.S., and so they are facing these income, these um, insurgents coming from Europe, uh, these discount chains. So Lidl is one of them, and Aldi is another. And right. so, you know, I talked to the former head of the U.S. store business at Walmart, uh, a guy from New Zealand named Greg Foran. 
And he was explaining to me, you know, as we're talking about challenges of competing with Amazon, he, you know, he was saying, I, I'm not just worrying about Amazon. I'm worrying about Aldi and Lytle. And I, I think I'm pronouncing Lytle correctly. Um, uh, L-I-D-L and Target and, you know, and some others, but those really, those are the two main ones in, and Kroger and grocery. As they keep getting bigger too. Correct. So, uh, not an easy place to be for sure. Um, and that's a great point. This is not just while well, the the Walmart Amazon rivalry, I think is, is sort of the most impactful for everyday life for all of us. Um, all of this other stuff Walmart is facing as well. Are there numbers out there in terms of percent of Americans that shop at one or the other? I mean, what percent of uh, the American consumers represented by these two brands? I don't have that off the top of my head. What I, what I will say is Walmart was Walmart tracked this metric. I think they might have made it up, which is um, first place market share, which meant something like what percentage of customers in this country uh, spend the most money with a given retailer. And I think overall, I think Walmart's still first place market share is still the greatest, but they were watching as Amazon kept eating into their lead over the last, especially over the last decade. And so that was another just sort of quantitative sign to them that, uh, that, that they were in trouble in a way. So the pandemic, obviously game changer for many companies. Take us up until 2023 now, uh, over the course of the last three years, how the pandemic uh, impacts Walmart's e-commerce business, how it impacts Amazon, and what it meant for where the two companies stand today. Yeah. So I'll break up the pandemic into sort of two phases, which are sort of the first year to year and a half, and then Whatever, whatever we've been in since <laughs> since then. Well, it's so, it's, it's the perils. Uh, it's the perils of writing a recent history book. You're like back the back in the late teens. I was like that was like four years ago, five years. Yeah, ago. yeah. I mean, the thing with like a part history book that also, you know, there is no natural ending. Is right. The world keeps changing and things keep happening. But you know, I knew that going in, uh, and luckily, one publisher at least was. Uh, was willing to well, take. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, as somebody who loves history, as a journalist, you know, like someone's got to write the first draft, uh, yeah. and that's essentially what you've done here with this book. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that, and th- that's kind of how I was looking at it. And so, so, so the first half of the pandemic, uh, I mean, for all the destruction in the world, the it was a pretty great thing for both companies. I mean. They are now lifelines. Uh, you know, Walmart, they're they're both just trying to keep up with demand. Um, they're also, though, you know, their employees are dealing with, you know, some some dangerous and uh, you know, otherwise challenging conditions. And, you know, that sort of led to the rise of the the Amazon, you know, union movement inside some of Amazon's warehouses. Uh, and so demand is incredibly high. Uh, even, you know, Walmart can't keep up with, they're, they're trying to offer the pickup service at their stores, uh, and delivery. And they just, you know, they can't even keep up. They end up actually, uh, seeding some of their market share in online grocery to a younger company we haven't mentioned called Instacart, uh, grocery delivery company. But, but largely these companies are, I mean, they're, 
Amazon and Walmart growing really fast, you know, challenging, you know, things happening in, in their warehouses and stores. But like they are, you know, they're Amazon had record profit and record sales in that first year. And then as the world starts going back to normal in some ways and inflation comes and, uh, you know, online shopping is still growing, but not as quickly, all these other challenges happen. So on the Amazon side, Amazon realizes it leased and was building way too many warehouses. Like the trajectory, there is this thought that e-commerce would jump ahead by like 10 years growth or something crazy. Yeah. And in fact, it was just like a year or two. And so well, Amazon realizes too many warehouses, uh, growth starts slowing. And so in the past year, we end up seeing them go through their largest corporate layoffs in their history. Um, 27,000 corporate employees. It's about a 5% of their overall staff, but, but really an inflection point, I think, for the company. Walmart, uh, you know, the pandemic forced them to do something that they only were dabbling it with for years, which I mentioned earlier, which is really turning the stores into like an advantage from an online perspective, investing in pickup services so that, you know, I, I have two Walmarts near me. They have 15 to 20 parking spots dedicated uh, to pick up and really making sure that experience is pretty darn good. Uh, and also doubling down on delivery as well from these stores. I'll just give one anecdote. You know, my family does order from Walmart as well. And we ordered something last year, thought it would be it said two or three day delivery. We didn't need it. You know, like many things we don't actually need the next day. Um, and so fine. Uh, later that same day, we have a we have a Walmart plastic shopping bag on our front porch in New Jersey. And it's the item we bought and uh they were so they just started getting the hand you know it's a tough technological problem but they are starting to now when you place an order that they think's coming from a warehouse if they see it near you um and maybe they have a delivery route near you and it's on the shelf in a local store they'll do this thing that kind of feels like a version of magic which is deliver it that same day and surprise you and so um you know there have been challenges with inflation and would and supply chain and inventory you know keeping inventory in stock and all of that but largely the pandemic has helped walmart sort of you know become what they call the omni channel the multiple channel retailer that they always wished they could become you mentioned amazon prime earlier as cracking the code can you elaborate on that? I mean, we live in a world now where, I mean, they have changed it culturally. Like if, if something isn't available to, you know, the idea of, you know, waiting a week for something to get shipped is, is you know, for many of us, like, oh, that's crazy. It's going to take a week to get here. Like I live in the Amazon world of two to three business days or sometimes next day. How did they figure it out? Well, it's a complicated answer, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to answer it succinctly. Um, the short answer is, they added a bunch of different valuable services to one membership. And, you know, you just, I think analysts have done the study on like how much value you're actually getting from the now $129 a year membership. And I think it's something like $700 worth of services. Um, so how does that make sense? Well, yeah. if you're 
if you're an antitrust critic of Amazon, you would you would make an argument that, and this is a bit complicated, but that the prices on Amazon may seem like they're the best possible, but actually through a bunch of um, rules that they make for their sellers, they're keeping prices down elsewhere on the web and forcing sellers to have a slightly higher price on Amazon than they normally would on their own websites. And so they're making some margin there. They also are now inquire, requiring basically to, to get noticed as a brand on Amazon, you to pay advertising fees. And that's a $40 billion business for Amazon today. Right. You can't scroll anymore after you search for a product. And the first one, sometimes it was the first one. And now I feel like it's the first three or four are all sponsored. They're all sponsored. And so, you know, they have arguments about why that actually is not a bad experience. But, you know, it is to some people, they think it's essentially just a fee, just a tax just to sell on Amazon today. And so, you know, so so there's an argument that they've been using their power that they've accumulated to sort of force fees upon sellers that they then use to to sort of fund prime. Uh and you know, and it's hard to argue when you, like you said, when you look at the value of Prime and what you're paying, like it's it's tough to understand how that makes sense otherwise. And and you know, a business line we haven't talked about, they also own Amazon Web Services, which basically powers the entire internet, right? Instead of right. a business needing servers, you now hugely just hugely profitable for them, hugely prof- profitable. The the estimates are that advertising business actually has higher pro- gross profit margins than AWS, but AWS, yes, incredibly profitable and definitely more profitable than the retail business. Um, and so these are some of the explanations for how they do what they do in Prime. Uh, the last thing I'll say just logistically, though, is, uh, you know, years and years ago, Amazon didn't collect sales tax uh, from customers, so they didn't charge it. And this was a big battle. The Walmart and others didn't think it was fair. Eventually, Amazon cuts deals with different states um, to start collecting sales tax. And part of that agreement was Amazon would then open up warehouses in these states. And so Amazon behind the scenes just starts building, investing in these warehouses that were really costly all over the country before they really need, had the demand to, for it to make sense. But they knew once they had those warehouses, they could offer the one-day you know, prime, the two-day prime, without putting items on planes, instead putting them in trucks, which is much cheaper. And so upfront, the warehouses cost a lot of money. But long-term, it was a key to speeding up prime to, to where it becomes just an immense competitive advantage. One thing that hasn't come up is we talk about these two behemoths are mom-and-pop shops across America. Yeah. The impact on small business owners. Um, Amazon obviously tries to, you know, uh, say that through their platform, they're allowing mom and pop to sell their, sell their wares. Talk to me about these two companies. I mean, obviously Walmart goes much farther back sure. and the impact that they've had on, you know, the consumer market writ large, the ability to have like a shop where you sell some goods, um, and their recognition of that, or is it kind of like, well, you know, it's survival of the fittest here. <sighs> Yeah, so I'll go back to Sam Walton's uh, biography. Uh, I'm blanking, I believe, Made in America. And in it, he has a quote, which he's addressing some of these criticisms about Walmart being a small business killer. And his argument, or not even argument, opinion, is that, 
listen, like a lot of these small businesses were just not taking care of their customers the way they should be. And so, you know, sorry, that's what we're focused on customers above all else. And, you know, we don't want to destruct small businesses, but if you're not treating customers well, like that's what's going to happen. He made a customer service argument. He did. And, uh, you know, and his feeling also was like, our pricing strategy is our marketing strategy. Essentially, if we are frugal as a company and we squeeze our vendors to, you know, every nickel, we can bring the lowest prices to our customers. And that's the best way we can serve, serve America is give them the low, you know, give them the lowest prices so people could live a better life. Um, and listen, I believe that's what the thinking was. And there was, you know, good, you know, that, that believe, you know, that he, meant well in this regard. But from the beginning, there was sort of not a disdain for other small businesses, but just a, like, if you can't, if you can't serve them well, like you deserve to go away. And so, you know, Amazon, uh, they kind of ignored for a long time their, their impact on small business. And then they start building up what they call the marketplace, which is allowing others to sell on Amazon. And they start positioning themselves as a, um, sort of savior to small businesses, you know, with an Amazon seller account, you don't even have to, you know, you can pay us to warehouse your goods. You can pay us to do customer service. We're giving you access to, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of eyeballs. And like, how else could you do that? And so there us, there is some truth to that. I've talked to many happy small businesses over the years who say, yeah, like there are some rules that are tough about Amazon, but I don't even touch my products. I send them straight from a supplier in Asia to a warehouse and I have to focus on good customer service maybe and, you know, having a good product. But like, man, like my life is good. Um, there is a There is a tough flip side though, which is, the fees keep going up for sellers. Um, there's the accusations, and they're not just accusations, they're fact in some cases, of Amazon essentially seeing a very popular product on its own marketplace and cloning it, essentially. Um, you know, there's there, there are many, many cases of this. And their argument will be, and has been, this has gone on in retail forever. I mean, retail stores, you know, the idea of private label products which essentially is a retailer, you know, maybe changing the ingredients or slightly or, you know, but essentially selling under their own brand, a very similar product at a lower price than someone else on their shelf. So um, it is it is a complicated topic. I think there are definitely some small businesses that feel like Amazon has been the best thing that's happened to their career or life. And there are many others that say, man, I'm there because I feel like I have to be there and I would not choose this if I had sort of free, you know, free will in a business sense. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of where we're at today. And, you know, the federal government and the regulators, they will decide soon whether Amazon along the way has broken any, uh, laws. There have been many accusations of anti-competitive behavior and depending on you know when when this will run, we we may see a, another federal trade commission lawsuit against Amazon um, having to do really in large part to 
how they treat uh, the hundreds of thousands of merchants who now sell through Amazon.com. Yeah, I mean, Amazon is a is a company the size, uh, the likes that we haven't seen many times in American history. Um, there's been a lot of talk about regulation, and, and I wanted to end here in terms of uh, the near future and what we should, as consumers, be on the lookout for. Uh, what are the headlines that you're on the lookout for? And what are the scenarios here over the course of the next decade of you know potential forced government breakup of of these behemoths? Is that is that something that Walmart could face or it's more of an Amazon issue at this point? So I think on the Walmart front, just quickly, I think Walmart largely their days of intense scrutiny in terms of a breakup or something like that are are are, are gone. I think um, now that could change, but and it's been very frustrating to the current CEO of Amazon, a guy named Andy Jassy, as I report in my book. He just he could he could not understand how they are Amazon's in the crosshairs and Walmart bigger in revenue is not. Um, but the one thing with Walmart, I would say, is acquisition wise, you know, if they want to make a really big purchase of another company that is sort of in their core business where they already have some great market share. Now, perhaps at least under this administration, they might have a challenge. But but otherwise, I think Amazon is, is the one to look at. Um, there was recently a lawsuit by the Federal Trade Commission filed against Amazon. Now, that one is has to do with Amazon Prime and the allegations that Prime, Amazon sort of tricked some people uh, through some tact, you know, tactics online into signing up for Prime, and then has made it very difficult to cancel. Right, right. Like I think it's like a, fi- a five or six step process. The FTC said to actually uh, unsubscribe from Amazon. Prime. Yeah, Amazon has now as as the before the lawsuit, but after FTC started uh, investigating, Amazon changed that ex- that cancellation process made for some people and made it a lot easier. But um, so that's one. But what's probably coming soon is an actual antitrust focused lawsuit against Amazon. It's not clear what exactly will be in there, but you know, the reporting and my hunch from talking to sources is it will have to do with the treatment of sellers, small businesses on the site, how Amazon sort of makes it a must to advertise or warehouse with them uh, to get access to prime members. And there may be an argument that we've seen some states make in lawsuits against Amazon that Amazon, through its policies, is artificially inflating prices across the web by not letting merchants sell for less on their own websites. Now, I don't know if that argument will hold in court, um, but the head of the FTC uh, is someone, a woman named Lena Khan, who has written papers previously as a law student arguing that the way we looked at antitrust in the past, um, you know, past few decades, where it's all about if consumers are benefiting then these companies, whatever they're doing is okay, might need to change now with these big tech companies that um, are controlling so many different facets of daily life. And we might need to put a more critical eye on you know, how they compete with others, even if we think consumers are currently benefiting from their low prices or services such as Amazon Prime. One final question I had for you. Uh, Amazon has played with brick and mortar stores in the last couple of years, uh, you know, putting stores in, in various cities, 
uh, it seems like they're pulling back on that. Are we living in a in a bipolar world to sort of reference the Cold War? There's the Soviet Union. There's the U.S. Uh, you know, both will will exist. Uh, now you have U.S. and China in in terms of a e-commerce thing. At the end of the day, there's going to be a Walmart. There's going to be an Amazon. Uh, and with the Amazon, you know, opening stores, et cetera, are they realizing actually we're going to leave the stores to Walmart and uh, at Amazon, we're going to stick to the, we're going to stick online. I, I think if Amazon is going to fulfill their longstanding ambition of continuing to grow in retail and find new pockets to innovate in, in the retail industry beyond all the other stuff. I think they absolutely feel they need to nail some big physical retail presence. And I'll tell you why. Now, they have acquired Whole Foods, so that's one piece. But you referenced they tried bookstores. Uh, they ended up closing those down. They have a different grocery chain in some markets called Amazon Fresh, which is in- intended to be more mass market, um, not as high price point as Whole Foods. And they've paused the expansion there. And I don't think that means they're giving up, and I'll tell you why. They feel they need beyond just you know eighty you know eighty to eighty five percent of consumer spending is still in physical retail. Um, they need pickup and delivery locations uh, beyond their warehouses because shipping. We talked about a little bit shipping and the fees of Prime. Like that stuff is super expensive, and the costs are only going up. So the idea that you know many Prime members do now, which is I'm going to order seven sizes of you know or seven different versions of something and just return the rest. Like even for a company like Amazon, that math eventually starts not working. And so we're seeing them play around with return fees. Long story short, besides just wanting to continue to go after consumer spending, they need more location. They just need more physical location so that we are not just shipping everything back because they cannot go on that way forever. And it was, you know, great innovation in a lot of ways with Prime, but right now they're facing some challenges because of the way they've trained us to shop. Jason Del Rey, uh, the author of Winner Sells All, the uh, recent history of Amazon, Walmart, and the state of the last 20 years and what's next. I appreciate you uh, joining us. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much again. All right. I want to thank Jason again for that great conversation. You can buy his new book, Winner Sells All, wherever you get your books. We've included a link in the show notes. As we conclude here, a quick request. I would love if all of you would consider joining Mo News Premium. You can check out details over at mo.news slash premium right now. It gives you early access to podcast episodes like this one, as well as exclusive episodes over at our members only podcast. And you get access to our members only Instagram account. That's where we do Q&As. I answer your questions on a regular basis and do deep dives on a variety of subjects per your request. By joining Mo News Premium, it's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, support independent journalism, what we're trying to do on multiple platforms. It keeps us going and growing. The added plus is that extra content. You can get it now for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That's two free months with the annual package. There's also a lifetime deal available. You can check that all out over at mo.news slash premium. Again, mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll see you soon. 